Good evening. It is so good to see everyone here again tonight. Hopefully you've had a restful Sunday afternoon. And, and I would encourage you to open your Bibles tonight if you'd like to follow along to the Gospel of Matthew. We'll be looking beginning at chapter 1 and work, work through several passages in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, it's no secret what many people in our world are talking about and thinking about at this time of year. Uh, A lot of folks are talking about the story of the birth of Christ and what that means. But whenever you bother to study what the Bible teaches, you often will find things that the world understands on a surface level, but really the Bible intends us to get at a much deeper level, a much more meaningful level. And I think that's the case with the story of the birth of Jesus. One of the things that you often hear is that uh, this precious child was brought into the world and you'll see these uh, scenes, manger scenes in people's yards and you've got proud parents looking admiringly into the face of this precious baby and while that scene fills us with warmth, it's really absent from Scripture. Have you ever noticed that? That that idea really isn't found. There's not a whole lot of emphasis on the manger. There's not really much talk about Joseph and Mary and how they felt about the birth of Jesus. None of the biblical stories are really about the world's version of the story. So I thought it might be valuable for us, since you've probably heard this story in one form or another in recent weeks, to really focus in on the Gospel of Matthew and to see what it's trying to teach us in these stories about who Jesus really is. And in Matthew's Gospel, at least, it is a story of biblical prophecy. Matthew is all about teaching us that every single event and the conglomerations of events around the birth of Christ took place in order to satisfy God's scheme of redemption, which was predicted centuries earlier in the prophecies of the Old Testament, that Jesus was exactly the kind of person the Hebrew Bible said he would be. And we see this right away in the very first prophecy we come across in Matthew chapter 1. We'll actually begin reading in verse 22. All this took place, the Bible says, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. This time it's Isaiah. Verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This may be the most familiar Old Testament prophecy to readers of the Bible. The story of the virgin birth is something that we all know, but what exactly is it trying to communicate to us? It is not merely a historical fact, it is a doctrinal point. And we'll talk about that as we go along. But first, let's look at the details of the prophecy itself. You'll notice, first of all, that every element of the prophecy has an application in Matthew chapter 1. The Bible refers to a virgin, a woman who has never known a man and yet still has become pregnant. First one to whom that has happened. And the Bible clearly identifies that person as Mary. Beyond that, it applies both to the conception of Jesus by means of the Holy Spirit and to the birth of Jesus. If you look at the very last verse, verse 25 of Matthew chapter 1, the Bible says that Joseph knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. In other words, the prophecy says, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. 
And so the Bible makes clear that not only was the conception miraculous, but they did not come together, if you know what I mean, until after Jesus was born. And and so this is a decision that they made in order to fulfill the prophecy. But then number three, it also applies to the identity of Jesus. We see the word Emmanuel, and that's a word we instinctively apply to Christ because we have been conditioned by years of preaching to say, well, Emmanuel is Jesus, of, of course. But the fact is, this name is extremely rare in the Bible. In fact, it occurs three times, and that's it, in the scriptures. In two of those, Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 23. The Bible does not use this name commonly. And that's why Matthew explains it. We believe that Matthew's audience comes from a Jewish background. They don't need an explanation of what the word Emmanuel means. They speak Hebrew. But he explains it anyway. Why? Because he's trying to communicate a point. And that is, this prophecy is not just some random historical event. Making a clear claim, this child was the Son of God. He was God who was deposited into the womb of a Galilean peasant to be raised in a poor family in a backwater part of the world that nobody cared about and yet was all along the Son of God. In Matthew chapter 1 and verse 18, we read at the beginning of this account, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. You know, the Bible traces genealogy by means of who a person's father was. And so, if your father was a Levite, what are you? Uh, I think you can talk to me, right? If your father was a Levite, who are you? You are a Levite. If your father was a Greek, who are you? You were a Greek. If your father was a Roman, who were you? Okay, so who are you if your father was the Holy Spirit? You were the Son of God. You see, a lot of people say that Jesus wasn't the Son of God, but He became adopted as the Son of God, maybe at the point of His baptism. Or maybe when He was hanging on the cross, people recognized just how good and pious of a man this was, and at that point, He became identified as the Son of God. Or maybe Jesus' disciples just made it up that He was divine, that He was the Son of God after His death and resurrection. But the Bible makes plain here, He was the Son of God right from the beginning, before He was born. You want to talk about personhood beginning in the womb? This was the Son of God at His conception. He didn't become the Son of God. He was the eternal God made flesh whom the world was blessed to have dwell among them. Luke makes exactly the same point, by the way, only it doesn't appeal to the prophecy of Scripture. It just comes out and says it. In Luke chapter 1 and verse 35, the angel is speaking to Mary And he says in response to her question, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. There can be no doubt what the Bible teaches on this issue. Jesus was the Son of God right from the point of His conception. Now for Christians, that's not much of a big deal. Most of us have affirmed for our entire lives and build our faith on the fact that Jesus was the Son of God. 
Skeptics have a problem with that one, but believers typically don't. And so let's move on to the next point that the next prophecy is trying to make about the identity of Jesus. Look at Matthew chapter 2 and begin reading with me in verse number 5. This is the passage where the wise men see the star in the east and they travel to Judea and they're not exactly sure what they're looking for so they go to King Herod. And they say, we know that a king has been born. And so he gathers all the scholars, you know, and they do an investigation to figure all of this out. And in verse number five, the Bible says, they told him, that is Herod, in Bethlehem of Judea is where the Christ is to be born. For so it is written by the prophet, this time the prophet Micah, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. We often look at this prophecy and the only thing we see, because we're not attuned to the prophecies of the Old Testament, we're not attuned to the expectations of who the Christ would be the way that Matthew's first readers were. And so the only thing we get out of this passage is Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But there is so much more to find here. Notice, first of all, when we look at the prophecy, we have to appreciate how Joseph and Mary even ended up in Bethlehem in the first place. You know, they are from a little village called Nazareth in the northern part of Israel that was known as Galilee. And so there is no conceivable reason why they should have traveled to Bethlehem while Mary was pregnant, risking the loss of this Holy Spirit pregnancy in order to get to Bethlehem. Were it not for the events that would seem completely unrelated historically, Jesus never would have been able to fulfill the prophecy that the prophet Micah gave 700 years before His birth. The Bible tells us in Luke chapter 2, here were the circumstances, beginning in verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Caesar Augustus was one of the longest tenured emperors of the Roman Empire, at least uh, in the early part of the empire. He reigned from 28 BC to 14 AD. He issued, as far as we know, two censuses in his reign. And one of them, is it a coincidence? Just so happened to bring about the events that brought about Joseph moving from Nazareth to Bethlehem in order for this prophecy to be fulfilled. Going on, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all this went to be, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, this is about a lot more than geography. Yes, they went to Bethlehem to be registered. And yes, that's where the prophet Micah said the Christ would be born. But there's more to the story. Jesus is the son of David. He's born in the same place that David was from. We learn in 1 Samuel chapter 17 that Jesse was from Bethlehem and raised his children there. We learn also that Jesus comes from the same line as David. In fact, The most frequent designation for Jesus by others, especially those who don't necessarily believe that He's the Christ, is Son of David. Jesus in the Gospels 17 times is referred to as the Son of David. Now, to you and me, that might mean, oh, He was the descendant of this really cool biblical character who killed a giant. 
But to people living in the first century, that meant much more, didn't it? It meant that Jesus was the heir of the kingdom of David, the greatest of the kings of Israel. That Jesus was an heir of the promise given to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God says to David that he would never lack a man to sit upon his throne. A prophecy that is reiterated in the book of Jeremiah, even though by Jeremiah's time, there are no more kings descended from David on the throne of Judah. And so people began to question, what, what, what did God mean by this promise? He told David that, that there would never be a lack of his descendants sitting upon the throne. And yet when the Babylonians came and took the children of Israel into exile, there are no more kings. Well, that means one of two things. Either, number one, God's promise was wrong. Or number two, God's promise did not apply to the earthly kings over Judah. It applied to a different kingdom, a heavenly kingdom, Daniel 2 and verse 44, an eternal kingdom over which His Son, the Christ, would reign. And so when the Bible with this prophecy makes plain that Jesus is a descendant of David and therefore qualified to be the Son of David, the great fulfillment of Israelite prophecy and messianic expectation, that was a powerful statement to people living at this time. And it ought to be a powerful statement to us. Because it means that we, reign, that we reign along with Christ over His kingdom which can never be destroyed. The church is sometimes stronger than at other times. The church is sometimes more numerous than at other times, but it is established by God and can never, no matter what happens in our world, be destroyed. Because the King is the Son of David, eternal, who reigns from the heavens. But then thirdly, and probably the one that is most difficult for people to see, is the prophecy we encounter as a result of a series of events found in Matthew chapter 2, and this time in verse number 15. This is a passage quoted from the prophet Isaiah, and at first glance, it seems not to really be a prophecy at all. In fact, if you go back and read Hosea 11, it, it seems that this is not a promise about the future, but rather a reflection of the past. This is after King Herod had slaughtered the children two years old and younger. And then Joseph was told in a dream to take the family to Egypt. And so verse 14 of Matthew 2, And he arose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, this time Hosea, out of Egypt I called my son. First of all, notice the prophecy itself. Like the one we talked about, about the Messiah being born in Bethlehem, was the result of a manipulation of history. Now, I'm not going to say that God caused Herod to slaughter the children, but Herod was a lunatic. I mean, this is a guy who's killed his grandfather, he's killed a couple of wives, he's killed multiple children, he's killed other members of the family. This guy doesn't mind executing people. In fact, at his death, he ordered a number of Jewish noblemen slain so that there would be more people weeping at the time of his death. This guy is a megalomaniac, okay? But God could use the crazed designs of a lunatic ruler in order to bring about the fulfillment of his grand plan, his scheme of redemption, driving the first family down into Egypt so that they would have to emerge in fulfillment of the prophecy of Hosea. The problem is 
The prophecy of Hosea seems to apply not to an individual, whether it's the future Messiah or anyone else. It seems rather to apply to the nation of Israel. And people will often look at this, and you can read commentaries that will say, well, Matthew is just misquoting Scripture. Matthew is misapplying what the Old Testament said. Or, upon deeper investigation and reflection, Matthew understood far more intimately what he was doing than many modern readers of Matthew understand. What it teaches us is that Jesus was the fulfillment of the nation of Israel. The living embodiment, the representation of where God's people in the Old Testament failed. We see this in the Gospel of Matthew. What happens in Matthew chapter 3? Jesus is baptized. He passes through the waters of the Jordan being baptized by John. What do we read about in the Old Testament when the children of Israel emerge from Egypt? They come to the Red Sea and they pass through the waters of the Red Sea. Now, Paul calls that a baptism in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. What happens after Jesus' baptism? He goes into the wilderness where he spends 40 days to be tempted. What happened to the children of Israel whenever they crossed the Red Sea? Oh, they too spent 40 years in the wilderness being tempted and failing where Jesus succeeded. And what happens in Matthew chapter 5? Do you remember what happens? Jesus ascends to the mountain and begins to reveal new instructions from the mind of God to the people of Israel. Just like Moses ascended the mountain of Sinai to receive new revelation from God for the people of Israel. Are, are we starting to see a pattern emerge here? That these events are not just stated at random. Matthew has a plan to show us that Jesus is the living representation of God's Old Testament people. The only difference is where they failed at every step, Jesus succeeded. He is the only person who ever lived a perfect life under the law of Moses. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10 that the law of Moses had the ability to produce life in those who kept it, the only hang-up is you had to keep it perfectly. And that's not something we humans can do. But Jesus showed that it could be done, proving the point that the law of Moses held out the possibility for life in salvation. Jesus was the living embodiment of the children of Israel in perfect form. And we see that this is also found in the prophet Isaiah as a prophecy of the kind of person God's perfect servant would become. If you read Isaiah chapters 40 through 55 in particular, what you will see is that the word servant is used very often in reference to someone who will deliver God's people. But it's a little confusing because sometimes the word servant seems to refer to an individual, and sometimes Isaiah seems to be using the word servant in reference to the nation of Israel. And so at the time of the New Testament, people said, well, these are not two different roles, but they're one. And so whenever Matthew presents Jesus in the role of God's perfect servant, he is combining the prophecies of Isaiah along with the prophecy of Hosea and saying everything you expect the Messiah to be, that's who this man was. Notice in Isaiah 42 and verse 1, Scripture says in reference to Jesus, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, he will bring forth justice to the nations. God's servant gathering in all peoples under the banner of God's kingdom. Look at Isaiah 49 and verse 3. He said to me, this is again the prophet Isaiah, you are my servant, comma, Israel, 
comma, in whom I will be glorified. You see, the nation of Israel ultimately tracks back to one individual, Jacob. In the name Israel never loses both its individual meaning as well as its national meaning. Jesus was the living embodiment of the hope of God's people who live perfectly under God's covenant. Isn't it interesting that the first three prophecies we encounter in Matthew's Gospel, which we consider or the world considers part of just the the fun story of Jesus' birth, are really communicating something deep and powerful about the identity of our Lord. Something that is transformative for our faith. Something that is essential for our confession so that we understand that Jesus really is Lord of heaven and earth as well as Lord of my life. The story of Christ's birth is about the fulfillment of prophecy. It's not about a precious child being received by parents who look upon this baby fondly. In fact, it's hard to find a description of newborn children that is exactly like that in ancient literature simply because the infant mortality rate was so high. They didn't talk about children the way we do. Jesus is not the focus of this story in terms of His childlike form. He's the focus of the story in terms of His being the Son of God. Of His being the Son of David and by virtue of being the Son of David, being the Messiah of God's scheme of redemption and then being the living embodiment and perfect fulfillment of God's covenant expressed in His people, Israel. God was planning the life of Christ since before the foundation of the world. In events of history, empires, kings, and kingdoms, and all sorts of intricate details were manipulated in just the right way to bring about the perfect circumstances for Jesus to be who God intended Him to be. In Galatians 4 and verse 4, the Bible says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the the law. That's who Jesus is. That's who Jesus is presented to be in the Gospels. That's who He's presented to be in the birth stories. But the bigger question for you and me is, who is He to us? Is He the Son of God who has the power to save you from sin? Who can rescue you from all your emotional burdens and spiritual problems? Is He the Son of David who reigns over a kingdom of which you are a part and to which you have committed and dedicated your life? Is He the Son of Israel the special people of God who received the blessings of God, who received the grace of God in a special way and yet turned away from it time and time again. Is God the Lord of your life? I ask you tonight, is there anything that this church can do for you? Can we pray for you to strengthen you emotionally? Can we encourage you spiritually? Can we study with you to help you develop a greater knowledge of the Word of God? Maybe it's the case that you have never been immersed in water for the remission of your sins. Would you come tonight confessing your sins, repenting of your sins, naming the name of Jesus above all names, and allowing us to watch as you make the greatest decision you could ever make by receiving the salvation of your soul at baptism. Maybe it's the case that you are just weak and you want strength tonight. One of the great things about the church is it is a community of God's people. A community who love each other and who are merciful to one another We would love to help you tonight to take any burden from your heart that you need taken away. If we can help in any way, give us that opportunity. Come as we stand and sing.